trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey there, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Monticello College, also by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. I'll have something to say about these sponsors later on, but right now I'm pleased to welcome my friend and fellow heretic, Eric Peters from EPAutos.com. Eric, how are you? I'm really good, uh, and I'm in a really good mood, given some of the developments in the, in the news lately that we talked a bit uh, about before we got on air. It's, it's rare that we have good news to talk about, so I'm, I'm happy for this as well. What do you want to lead off with? Well, uh, two things. One is the news that uh, the governor of Texas, Abbott, has uh, decided to forbid any vaccine mandates, not just for the government, but for private businesses as well, and to remand that to the voluntary choice of the individual person, which is wonderful. So now we have two states. We have Texas and Florida that are pushing back against this. And the other bit of news comes out of Florida, where apparently um, there has been a mass walkout of people who worked for Southwest Airlines over the vaccine mandate. And and this caused quite a disruption in air travel over the weekend, mass flight cancellations and so on. And I'm hoping that this sort of thing will spread. It won't take much, just a little bit more, and they will not be able to, to pursue this. It's a really good analogy. A good way to look at this is to go back through the pages of history and think about prohibition a hundred years ago when the government made a really concerted effort to try to illegalize the consumption of alcohol and people just wouldn't have it. They wanted to have their beer, they wanted to have their wine, and they, they just ignored and defied the law until the thing became unenforceable and it was eventually repealed. Well, I'm happy to see, uh, do I dare say, a spirit of rebellion finally mm-hmm. taking hold in the hearts of my fellow Americans. I am too. I think people are at their wits end with this you know we're getting to the we're getting to nearly the two-year mark we're, we're almost there of the beginning of this whole fiasco and that's a long time to expect people to live in a state of constant panic uh... and to diminish their lives and to torment them and that's what we're really ultimately talking about here torment them with these bizarre and absurd rituals that they're supposed to perform with the crippling of their lives the crippling of their economic livelihoods I think more and more people are saying it's enough and it's time to stop this. Agreed. And it's isn't it interesting? I don't know if you saw the tweet. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't a government official yet, but someone observing on Twitter was like, well, it didn't take very long for these uh, pilots, you know, these I, I guess they, he didn't even say pilots, anti-vaxxers to, yeah. to use their domestic t- terrorism to uh, disrupt travel. And I went, oh, boy, here we Dear go. God. Yeah, and by the way, I just posted an article about this whole anti-vax thing and the way language is being manipulated to smear and disparage the people's, uh, people's true positions. I'm not anti-vaccination as such. I think, uh, as a libertarian, that every person is sovereign over their body and that they have the right to put anything they want to in their body, and it's none of my business. It's up to them to, to evaluate whether they think it's, um, whether it's safe, whether they think it's effective. That's their choice. So, uh, you know, I'm not, quote-unquote, anti-vax. I'm anti-being told that I must take the drugs that are being pushed by these people. And that's a clarification that I think we all should make whenever this topic comes up in conversation. Oh, I, I completely agree. 
And isn't it interesting how many people have found their livelihoods on the line simply for not wanting to be pushed into a medical decision that they did not make for themselves? Sure, and I think a lot of these people realize what I've been writing about for some time, which is that this goes beyond simply this particular drug, this particular medical procedure that they're pushing because of the underlying principle that's on the table, which is that if employers, if the government uh, can, can, can force you to submit to this particular medicine, to take this medicine, uh, then you have set the precedent for them being able to tell you practically anything with regard to your personal health choices. And that's a Pandora's box that we dare not open because it will completely alter forever the nature of life in this country in a way that I think most Americans would not like. Well, I I don't want to raise the victory flag too quickly, but this has got to be putting some fear in the, in the hearts and minds of the people who are in power and desperately trying to hold on to that power. It, it couldn't be more clear. At least in some areas, it's beginning to slip through their fingers. It is, and of course, what comes along with that is a danger, because when you corner a rat, what happens? The rat tends to bear its fangs and will try to bite. So I fully anticipate that this is not going to just kind of fade away gently. I think that we're going to see and experience some really awful things over the course of the next several months as these people triple down on their hysteria. They have to. They can't let it go. They have committed and invested so much in this. People like Fauci, Gates, and all of them, their credibility is on the line. And more than that, ultimately, if this thing goes the wrong way for them, I foresee uh, a moment in time when they might be held personally accountable, even potentially criminally liable for the damage that they have caused, for the lies that they have told, for the laws that they have broken. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 I yearn for that day. But in the meanwhile, we have to think about it because these people do have power still. They have political power. And I have no doubt that they are going to use it just as um, politicians in the past who've been cornered and threatened with the loss of their power and potentially threatened with consequences tend to lash out in a way that's not pleasant. Agreed. Now, there, talk to me about uh, the, the good news coming out of Texas. I know that Governor mm-hmm. Abbott uh, put down a pretty decisive foot yesterday about uh, vaccine mandates. What's the story mm-hmm. there? Well, apparently he did just that. He said, look, this is something that should be a voluntary decision. It is not something that any government entity or any private business has the right to impose on people as a condition of employment. It's simply none of the employer's legitimate business. It's none of the government's legitimate business. Now, I don't know whether he drew the parallel or said this. This is just me freestyling here. But, you know, he may have seen this as simply the same thing as putting out, um, you know, a no-colored sign in front of the store. That This sort of thing, you just can't do this. It's not permissible. You can't invade people's personal space in this manner and interfere in their private personal decisions on the basis of some nebulous, putative public health threat. It's nonsense. And I applaud him for doing it. DeSantis has been excellent on this. And all we really need at this point are two or three more governors to to get this thing going kinetically and to develop an inertia that's going to be very, very hard to stop. Well, my fingers are crossed. And I I don't know what I can do on my end other than you know, continue to exhort people, just do not comply. Yeah, to stand fast. You know, I've had this conversation privately with a number of friends of mine who are, who are facing this, this, um, this choice. You know, they're threatened with the loss of their livelihood. I've got a couple of friends who are nurses, for example, and as you know, um, the, the healthcare industry, and particularly anything connected with the government, has been the most vociferous with regard to forcing the jabs on people. 
and these friends of mine do not want to be jabbed, but they also don't want to lose their jobs. And I point out to them, you know, there's more on the line here than just your job. There's your health, for one thing. You, you know, you're being expected to place your health at risk for uh, the sake of these demented fears about people's health, which is a crazy contradiction to my mind. It, it just floors me the way that that thing has been presented to people. And that if you bow to this, as we were just talking about a few minutes earlier, then it will never end that they will then demand other things of you, increasingly intrusive, increasingly degrading, to the point where you will not want to work anymore. You will not want to live in this country anymore. You can always get another job. It's much harder to get another country. It's much harder to get your, get your health back once it's ruined. No, that's, that's a good point. And, and it takes, I, I can't tell you how much I admire the courage and the willingness to stand up there and, and suffer you know, the injustice of losing their job or otherwise, you know, the shame of, of uh, not going along. But it, I, I can't help but think they're doing the right thing. They're doing it for the right reason. You know, I, I send whatever encouragement I can. I think I would, I would send it from my pocketbook as well just to make sure that they know we've got their backs. Sure. You know, Americans once were taught to admire this sort of thing. Remember Nathan Hale? I regret that I have but one life to give for my country things like that, you know, you have to take a stand sometimes. Uh, of course, it's not pleasant sometimes to take a stand. Sometimes that stand comes at personal cost. Sometimes it comes at the cost of your life. You know, we're not anywhere near that point yet, thank God. But we will get closer to that point if people aren't willing to stand up to this now. Yeah, something that has, has I've seen consistently in your writings on this matter is, you know, it's going to continue as long as you continue to comply. Once that's enough, exactly right. Once enough people decide we're not going to comply anymore, that's, that's when this will stop. Sure. Imagine going back into the pages of history, if you can uh, visualize being in Germany in the late 1920s. If enough Germans had said, you know, this is really wrong, this is intolerable, I'm not going to put up a sign in my store that says no Jews allowed, uh, I'm not going to snitch out uh, the guy who lives in the apartment below me because he's a Jew, I'm not going to do that. And not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to very openly and publicly uh, express my contempt and disgust for anybody who is involved in that sort of thing. Imagine how the world might have been different if people had done that back then. Yeah, it's not like the lessons of history aren't there for us to learn from. It's mm-hmm. just you got to pay attention. Hold that thought. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with Eric Peters from epautos.com. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com that will take you to his website. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I was looking at an article that I think you just posted earlier this morning about arguing what was never argued. Mm -hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, and th- there's some great lessons to take away from this. Walk us through this, this uh, column, if you would. Well, essentially, it's about not letting yourself be, be, uh, uh, be pigeonholed into arguing about what you didn't argue. You know, we got into this a little bit earlier with regard to the anti-vax thing. Right. No, I'm not anti-vax. I'm anti-being pushed to get a vaccination, and that's an entirely different kind of discussion. Um, I, I wrote in my article about this electric car thing. I get criticized often as being anti-electric car, and that's absolutely not true. Now, I personally don't particularly like electric cars, 
But I have never once said that anybody should be prohibited from buying an electric car if they want to. And I have absolutely no problem ethically or morally with any company that wants to make them offering them for sale. What I do have a problem with is being told that I have to buy an electric car and that I must pay taxes to support the buying of electric cars by other people. You know, that's the conversation, just as it's the conversation with regard to the vaccines, uh, that people should be free to take them and that you're not anti-vax because you're pro-choice with regard to the vaccinations. No, I, I agree. I think it's it's kind of a cheap psychological trick to, to switch it around. And, you know, it's I guess it's a, it's a straw man argument. And, and there are plenty of things. It is, but, you know, in a way, the one thing about it that's really good is that it shows the weakness of the opposition. You know, they're very clever psychologically, the way they can, they, the way they, the way they manipulate language and definitions to, uh, to try to manipulate the conversation. But fundamentally, it shows that they're afraid of truth. They're afraid of facts. They're afraid of having an honest conversation about anything because, generally speaking, they'll lose that kind of a conversation. Yeah. Yep. I, I completely agree. Um, let's talk about something else here that I know is on some people's mm-hmm. minds. I, I briefly mentioned this to my audience yesterday, but I want to go into some more detail with you. Tell me about your reaction to seeing empty store shelves and what this, mm-hmm. uh, what this is telling us. Well, for me, it was almost a flashback. Um, I think you and I are about the same age. We're Gen Xers, so we can remember the Soviet Union. And we can probably remember documentaries of life in the Soviet Union where they would take the camera into one of the, uh, the supermarkets in Russia where the shelves were empty, you know. And we were like, wow, that's just, wow, that's really depressing. You know, it's not like that here in America. We go to the store and there's always plenty of everything. You never have any problem getting anything. Well, America is becoming Soviet. You know, I think uh, probably most of the people listening to this show will have experienced the same thing I've experienced and that I think you've experienced. You go to the supermarket now and the shelves are kind of toothless. You know, you'll see these big gaping gaps where, where the, the products used to be. And in some cases, whole aisles are empty of products. I went to Walmart yesterday with my girlfriend because, you know, I kind of got a sweet tooth and I wanted to stock up on some candy. The whole aisle was practically empty. We took a video of it, and I'm going to post that on my site later. But I've never seen that in my entire life. Almost all the candy, the whole row, the entire length of that aisle, empty of any products. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of weird conspiracy nut, even though I probably am. I The thing that set me off was uh, when I started to notice the store shelves, uh, you know, and it was just a few empty spaces here and there. But as, as time has gone on, what has made me feel a chill up my spine is the recognition that this is becoming normalized. This It's, yeah. it's not that big of a deal because it's been going on now for at least a couple of months. But, yeah. I, am, but I am noticing those empty spaces are growing. Sure. And as you say, it's becoming normalized. Uh, This diminished life that they're trying to foist on us of scarcity, of higher cost. Look at the cost of uh, a pair, a set of pork chops that used to sell for six or seven bucks at my Kroger is now like nine or ten dollars for the same thing. Um, It's really awful as America becomes Soviet because of all of these insane policies, which are deliberately malicious, that are designed to diminish our lives. To, to take away our choice and to increase the cost. It's not conspiracy when it's fact. And all you have to do is go out there and see it for yourself. Well, and, and to me, the craziest part about this, with all these container ships sitting off the coasts and, you know, the lack of Teamsters to unload them, the lack of drivers to, to truck the, the goods where they need to go, mm-hmm. that's all the product of regulatory power 
at some level. It's not a matter of, well, gee, there's just, you know, so many people are sick or whatever. This is a conscious decision on somebody's part to, to not make things happen or to complicate things so that they don't happen. Without question. Uh, yeah, it's the administrative state decreeing what shall be, and now we're seeing people's reaction to it. I think with regard to the container ships and the Teamsters, I personally think that a big part of this so-called supply chain issue is that a lot of people who work in these various fields are electing to not come to work anymore because they don't want to be jabbed. That for them, as important as their job is and as much as they'd like to work, they simply will not abide this. They don't want to put their health at risk because there's nothing more important than that. You lose your health and you're not going to be able to work, and that's the bottom line. Yep. And and for those people who have, have been kind of slow to recognize you know, corporate America appears to be very much in bed with whatever big government is is demanding. And so if you haven't thought about some yep. kind of an exit strategy, maybe this is a good time to start thinking. What can I do? What's an entrepreneurial thing, some kind of cottage industry that I could uh, could begin that could remove me from their clutches? Yeah, it's an interesting thing with regard to corporations. They sort of made a devil's pact with the government. This is a, this is a, this is a topic, a hot topic amongst libertarians. And what I mean by that is that corporations, as they exist in this country and everywhere else practically, are a creature of government. They're not free enterprise. The whole uh, legal exemptions, the, 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 they are limited liability corporations. They get special privileges by dint of their status as a corporation. But the downside to that is now the government owns them. Now the government can threaten to withhold their perks and privileges, to deny them their special tax status and so on, if they don't comply with what the government tells them to do. And that's why corporations have become the de facto enforcement mechanism of the government. No, it, it makes sense. And, and I guess, the, again, the, the option for people who, who work for those corporations or who, who are looking for jobs, at some point, you've got to be willing to break out of that employee mindset unless you want to be at the mercy of whatever the corporations and their government partners, you know, have in store for you. Yeah, that's very true. You and I have been talking for months now about this, and it's very important, about reclaiming your independence on an individual level by disconnecting from these uh, centralized, corporatized systems that have you by the short hairs. The more control you have over your own life, including your own economic life, the less control these centralized apparatuses have over your life. Agreed. And it's and I, as one who just really you know took my first big step into you know being an independent contractor just a little over a year ago, um, it took me a long time to get there. It's scary, mm-hmm. and there, there's risk involved. And um, yet, I look back on it now, and I think, okay, I wish I had done this many years sooner. And I'll take whatever risk is involved because there's, a, there's also an amount of freedom that's involved that I hadn't really counted on. There's, there's more flexibility even if there is more risk. Well, you know, and another aspect of this, uh, and I'm speaking now to people who are out there listening to this who may be contemplating a similar move, is that the risk is to a great extent, in my opinion, illusory. What I mean by that is there's a presumption that if you work for a corporation or a company as an employee that you have job security, that you're safe. Well, you're not. You know, leaving aside all of the stuff that's happened with regard to the the Rona, uh, the corporation can at any time decide to to fire you. You are an at-will employee, uh, and your job security depends solely on the good graces of your employer. So while it's true that if you're self-employed, you know, things may dry up next week, your job may dry up next week. But at least when you're self-employed, you're the decider, largely. It's up to you whether you succeed or fail. Uh, whereas you can be the best worker in the world, conscientious, and do your job, 
and the corporation can be poorly managed, or you could have a bad boss, and all of a sudden you've got no job, and then where are you? Great points. Eric, it's great to catch up with you each week. Um, in, in the 30 seconds we have left, tell our listeners where they can find your website. Sure. It's ericpetersautos.com, um, and you just plug my name into any search engine, you'll find it as well. And if you're interested in talking about political issues, philosophical issues, or just want to talk about cars, which is my favorite thing, uh, uh, please come down and, and do so. We'd love to have you with us. Okay. There's some great things to learn from the commenters on his page as well. Eric, we'll look forward to talking next week. Sounds good, Brian. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yes, it's true, my voice is hanging on by a thread today, but... There is so much important stuff going on, and I want to share it with you. And, of course, I always compile show notes. Every time I, I do an episode of the program, I publish show notes. And here's something you can do. If you, if you don't have time to listen to the show, if you only can catch a little bit on your way to work or whatever, that's, hey, that's fine. I'm not going to take offense. But if you want to check out the show notes, I, I would encourage you, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can subscribe And it won't cost you a thing to subscribe. I will send you an email of my daily show notes, and then you can pick and choose what uh, you find most useful. Now, if you find value in what I'm doing, I would ask you to consider becoming a regular monthly contributor. I throw some pretty nice perks in the direction of those who become, you know, a a yearly contributor. And uh, the details are there, you know, but if you can can do five bucks or ten bucks a month, um, it's greatly appreciated. You keep the wolf away from my door. You allow me to focus my attention on finding and disseminating the best information that I can. And I greatly appreciate it. And there are a lot of folks who've been helping out like this, and it's it's wonderful. Thank you for making this possible. So we've had a solid year and a half to evaluate how all the various mandates and lockdowns and other official responses to COVID have panned out. In other words, we know what works and what doesn't. And yet there still persists this attitude of security theater. I don't know that's a term that's going to offend some people, but hear me out on this. Got a great article here from Joaquin Book, who points out that we're likely to continue to see more security theater simply because public health officials cannot admit that they were wrong about the various mandates, about the various lockdowns and other official responses. They're not interested in loosening their grip on power. And Joaquin Book starts with an example of um, getting a taxi ride. He says, the taxi driver pulls up to where I wait alongside my newly found acquaintances, like me, eager to split the exorbitant fare. He's wearing an all-covering face mask, as well as one of those transparent visors that don't do anything but put distance between you and others physically and psychologically. In a place where almost nobody bothers with the masks anymore, partly because of low case counts and high vaccination rates, partly because of ire with how cumbersome they are. Joaquin Book says it's odd that taxi drivers stubbornly wear them. Now, when I entered the front seat, he insisted that I wear one too, 
even though he made no attempt to air out the very constricted space he'd already filled up with his own exhalation in the minutes before arriving. Somebody consistently frightened by catching or spreading COVID-19 ought to, at minimum, take the simplest and most effective precautions before insisting others embrace actions of which the real-world efficacy is highly in doubt. And by the way, he has a link to why all that masking stuff is highly in doubt. Halfway through the very silent ride, the driver reaches for the volume button and listens intently for the 11 o'clock news. He dutifully relays to us foreigners the latest COVID case counts and the number of children who had become infected. Worrying, he said, indeed, my acquaintances frantically agree. Now, Joaquin Book says this would not have been an uncommon event had this taken place 18 months ago. At a time when the pandemic was still new, when we still knew very little about how the disease operated, how to protect oneself against it, how it's transmitted, and who seemed to be most at risk. That this guy, clearly in distress, reported case numbers to strangers and took the very selective countermeasures he did in October 2021 reveals so many things that have gone wrong in the West, both COVID-related over the last year and a half and politically and personally over the last few decades. He says, Phil Magnus and James Harrigan recently reflected on the Great Barrington Declaration one year out. Among the things that they noted was the aim that our guests had in offering the Great Barrington Declaration was to spark scientific dialogue that had been missing from the lockdown discussions until that point. And Joaquin Book says, in trickling down to the average person, the proverbial man on the street, the hysteric voices of everlasting lockdowns have been utterly successful. One and a half years out, my taxi driver has neither encountered views of scientific reason nor incorporated into his behavior anything but the counterproductive measures that are the most invasive and most hyped in the news. It's feeling good, not doing good all over again. He says, for a piece in Bitcoin magazine in August, I wrote about the pretend world we find ourselves in. We live in a pretend world with pretend ideals, pretend money, and pretend language. A world of quick fixes and quick bucks, where the road to success no longer requires hard work, just papering over whatever defects emerge. If there's a freak virus precipitously spreading across the world, we come down heavy with all the mighty force of big government assisted naturally by the central planners of the world. We don't let people take responsibility for their health, encouraging them to eat better, work out more, be outside more, but lock them in their homes where disease spreads faster, or easier rather, and where they don't renew their vitamin D supplies. We pretend the solution is a medical invasion, a quick fix, rather than a healthy body and a strong immune system. Joaquin Book writes that Ron DeSantis, the much-hated and much-admired governor of Florida, recently said about mask mandates that politicians want to force you to cover your face as a way for them to cover their own asses. We reacted, we overreacted truly. And he says we couldn't walk it back until saved by a do ex machina in the form of a medical intervention. And even then, the mask mandates got harsher for pretty incomprehensible reasons. Joaquin Book says whether the vaccines are as effective in every way as their proponents first hoped, hoped rather, doesn't really matter. They were a game changer that gave politicians a way out 
a way to not admit wrongdoing in the first half of the pandemic. Our political leaders and their bureaucratic underlings made plenty of errors in the last year and more, rooted on by an ever more authoritarian press and more intolerantly divided electorate. More so than the decades before that, with terrible foreign policy decisions like Iraq and Afghanistan, domestic surveillance and inept and invasive TSA searches, macroeconomic decisions like low interest rate policies, bailouts, invasive financial regulations, health care decisions, affordable care, and many more. He says to a certain extent we should relieve policymakers of at least some blame as they had to act in the moment on poor information and lots of fear-mongering. But we combined an invasive and trigger-happy political class dominated by the desire to rule others and the urge to do something with an inability to admit fault and roll back mistakes, the opposite of what one would need in a fast-paced, low-information environment. Joaquin Book says, as a political nation and individual actors, We can't seem to own up to our mistakes and instead double down on our errors. Democrats overestimated the danger of the disease many times over, thinking children were more at risk than they were and mostly refused to accept the low-hanging fruit that was available. Vitamin D, obesity, going outside, workouts, healthy eating. Republicans, while also vastly overestimating the lethality of the disease, did so to a smaller extent and erred in thinking COVID-19 less dangerous than routine ills like car crashes or seasonal flu. In an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal last week, John Tierney made the astute comparison to the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, when some of the same characters involved in today's pandemic mistakes showed their extreme tendency for exaggeration. Quote, The AIDS fearmongers suffered few consequences for their mistakes. The false alarms were long forgotten by the start of the COVID pandemic when the news and public policy were dominated by scientists who overestimated the fatalities by a factor of 10 and erroneously warned that people could be easily infected by touching contaminated surfaces or breathing air outdoors. Now, Joaquin Book says in real life, people still believe the erroneous and absurdly exaggerated fears that our political and journalistic merchants of fear released a year and a half ago, as he learned this week from his taxi driver. That the unjust war on fat and faulty promotion of sugar and carbs nearing retirement now has only just begun to unravel. And that the Afghanistan debacle took close to two decades to roll back. Tells us that hysterical policy decisions last for an absurdly long time. How long we'll carry the mistakes of COVID, he says, is anybody's guess. But we'll play a lot of security theater until then. I really love his analysis. I really love the American Institute for Economic Research. And if you are a person who is especially trying to keep up on all the different COVID data and, and I mean, really principled stuff, not just, you know, partisan back and forth. These are the guys I would, I would refer you to AIER.org. You can sign up for their emails. They come, I think just about every day. I think I, I get emails pretty much every day, seven days a week. With about a half dozen or so great articles, meticulously researched and sourced, and very intelligently presented. I'm not saying it's gospel truth, but let's just say they put in the hard work of getting their facts straight. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to take a minute here to talk about my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. I want you to know that I make a very sincere effort every time I crack open this microphone not to add to whatever fear or anger you may have at work in your life. And I'm not saying you're walking around as a seething ball of rage or, you know, a quivering, you know, lump of fear. But uh, let's just say there's, there's plenty of fear and anger to go around out there. I don't want to increase your burden. But occasionally we have to look at uh, some hard realities. And one of the hard realities that we're starting to see right now is the very beginning of a breakdown of a global of the global supply chain. You know, you see it in empty shelves in the stores, you see it particularly those of you in the manufacturing industries Look at how difficult it is to get parts or to get commodities that, uh, you know, I mean, there are some things that are just uh, flatly, they're, they're, they're not available. People are losing sales because they can't fill their customers' orders because they can't get the materials they need to fill those orders. And what's the, what's the place? Is it Augustine Farms? Basically, one of the biggest suppliers of freeze-dried foods, you know, emergency foods for America just announced they're shutting down for 90 days. Care to guess why? They can't get product. Now, why am I telling you this? Again, it's not to make you fearful. This is just, this is a simple reality check in the hopes that you will take this information and act on it while there is still relative calm and while there is still relative abundance, particularly in the form of of food stores. Click on the link that I provide in the show notes for lifesavingfood.com. If there was ever a time to get some stuff put away for a rainy day, this is the time. And the best part is, if you use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout, lifesavingfood.com will knock 20% off for my listeners. That's a better deal than if you went to Ready Wise Foods directly. It's a pretty significant uh, discount and it could not be more timely. I don't know how to state that any more clearly without, you know, treading up into the, you know, he's getting really insistent. This is sounding kind of fearful. I just want you to be aware. We've got some serious times coming. And we have a window of opportunity. That window is open right now. I don't know when it's going to close. But I have a feeling that when it closes, it's going to slam shut probably akin to what we saw back about mid-March of 2020. Don't get caught. Don't get caught, you know, unprepared. And thank you in advance for supporting one of my great sponsors like LifesavingFoods.com. All right. I want to talk a little bit about that global supply chain breakdown. If you've been wondering why are so many of these container ships anchored or drifting just offshore instead of being unloaded, Peter C. Earle from the American Institute for Economic Research has a very detailed explanation. I'm going to share just a portion of this, but I also have a link to this article in the show notes. It's, it's a fairly lengthy read, and he has plenty of charts and facts and figures. Again, this is not just somebody sitting down and throwing out, you know, a word salad of, here's what I think's going on. 
This is well-researched. But he starts with, uh, with a quote from Jim Morrison of The Doors and, and a poem song called Horse Latitudes in which Morrison describes the conditions under which stalled galleons would, drifting listlessly at certain latitudes, jettison their cargo so as to make the ship more susceptible to the slightest winds. And these are the lyrics. that, that uh, This is how it starts out. When the still sea conspires in armor and her sullen and aborted currents breed tiny monsters... True sailing is dead. Yeah, that's pretty deep. Peter C. Earle says, Cargo vessels no longer raise sails or require wind to fill them, but doldrum-like conditions are rapidly manifesting near ports all over the world. Last week, 61 vessels were were anchored offshore. Uh, This was as of September 23rd. Waiting to unload cargo at the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach. Now, in addition to the anchored ships, 29 were adrift up to 20 miles offshore, meaning they were far enough off the coast their anchors couldn't reach the ocean floor. And in the east, on Sunday, September 26th, the port of New York and New Jersey appeared to be facing similar issues as West Coast ports with 24 cargo ships and oil tankers stuck waiting to dock off the coast of Long Island, New York. As of 9 p.m. local time Saturday, the ships appear to have been stuck in place for hours. Now, Peter Earle says, look, explanations for the increasing delays include slow unloading or loading times, rising costs of shipping, and capital shortages. All of those explanations are correct, he says, but incomplete and insufficiently descriptive. To To uncover the root causes and trace their evolution, we have to go back to the very beginning. And he goes through all the different, uh, the different reasonings of why docking locations among the U.S. coast are among the slowest in the world. Not because of size or technological capability, but collective bargaining hindrances. He talks about where it all began. and says, as is well documented by now, the effects of non-pharmaceutical interventions sent measures of economic activity plummeting throughout the second quarter of 2020. Unemployment skyrocketed to levels not seen since the Great Depression. The U.S. government countered with stimulus payments via the CARES Act in March of 2020, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the American Rescue Plan, and although state governors adopted independent pandemic postures, the spectrum of stringency ran a gambit from less to more binding as exemplified by Florida and North Dakota versus Hawaii and California. What he's talking about here is the sudden strangulation of in-person commercial activity. Coupled with weeks to months of veritable isolation at home, trillions of dollars being mailed out, leading to a consumption binge. I mean, it was a good time for Amazon, right? This was both well-documented and empirically verifiable. Where in normal circumstances, modern U.S. consumers tend to purchase services more than goods, the circumstances arising of isolation at home for prolonged periods of time led to a decisive shift towards purchasing goods, electronics, furniture, exercise equipment, home improvement items, and so forth. From here, he goes into what intermodal transport is, how it makes much of the modern world tick, but mostly on an unobserved and mostly unappreciated level. For instance, the standardization of shipping containers in such a way that they can move from trucks to ships to aircraft, barges, and trains with a minimum of effort 
That's a feat of technology and international coordination. He talks a little bit about the Ever Given and the Suez Canal. Do you remember that earlier this year? The massive ship lodged there. He talks about how shipping containers have dwindled. And he goes into Chinese difficulties, containers and ships vanishing, pallets joining containers. I'm skipping ahead here. Also, ongoing port congestion. All of these things taken into account. And and there are charts and graphs that go along with every bit of this. Again, some of this may be too tedious for you, but if you really want to understand why there is uh, currently a breakdown in the supply chain or why it's starting to occur, Peter Earle's article is a great place to start. Oh, he also talks about how the spot rate for uh, shipping has gone up and up, like, incredibly. I think he said 700, as of last week, he says the spot rate for container rates was up 731% over the average of the past five years. Now, there's a lot of economist talk here. And for some people, that might, you know, it may have unfamiliar words or unfamiliar ideas. I just want to assure you, you are more than smart enough to figure this out, to, to learn and grasp the concepts he's talking about. This is not, you know, uh, molecular biology. <clears throat> but I want to give you this, this thought that he ends on. He says, science and engineering have brought about an era in which doldrums no longer vex modern-day mariners. In other words, the doldrums where there were no winds to fill their sails and the ships would sit there sometimes for weeks waiting for something to move them along that ocean surface. Yeah, that's no longer a problem. Peter C. Earle says, owing to innovation and entrepreneurship, these are no, there are no longer horse latitudes where payloads are dumped overboard by desperate crews. Yet those, immersion, those conditions rather have re-emerged, born not of nature, but of power mindlessly exercised. The idea that an economy could be indiscriminately shut down and turned back on without far-reaching consequences like a light switch or a lawnmower, he says, that is utterly damnable. It can only come from the mind of an individual or body of individuals with no understanding of or consideration for the extraordinary interdependence of the productive sector. I'm telling you, there's an education in this article alone. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Consider subscribing. Consider becoming a supporter. Maybe consider becoming a sponsor. I'd love to have you come on board. This is The Brian Hyde Show.